Welcome to Train Rush, your underperforming stock of 18xx podcasts, brought to you by Craig Taylor and Dave Moss. How are you doing today, Dave? Yeah, I'm good, Craig. Yourself? Yep, super excited, because today we don't have to talk about a game. Well, we do have to talk about a game, but not just a game. Indeed. Yeah, today we get to talk with a friend on the show. Well, a guest, more accurately. Specifically, Scott Peterson, the man behind All Aboard Games. So... Rather than me giving a loose introduction, I think we're going to have Scott introduce himself very briefly, and then we're going to get into such topics about how Scott got into 18xx, how the 18 Chesapeake campaign, which I'm sure everybody wants to hear about, and perhaps, if we're lucky, the future direction of AAG. So, over to you, Scott. Please introduce yourself to people at home. Okay. Hi, hi, Craig. Hi, Dave. Yeah, I'm happy to talk through all these questions that you've got for about 18 Chesapeake and all board games. Excellent. It's great great to have you on the show this week, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'd like to say now, actually, I've got to, I'm going to say it outright and get the fanboy stuff out of the way. Absolute massive fan of your product. I mean, the first podcast we did was on 1822, which I, like I say, think is a wonderful, still think it's a wonderful train game. It's, it stood the test of the last year for me, at least, which is, uh, which is something. And obviously, with the amount of um, expansions and variants on it, you have a lot of confidence in the core engine that Simon's put together. And I've had a lot of fun exploring the back catalogue, be it the stuff you've done on behalf of Deep Fork Games or the stuff you developed yourself. So we're super pumped to have you on the show. All right. Thank you. And I'm very happy to be here. And I'm a big fan of your podcast. And I listen to it while I'm making the games. Wowzers. Wow. <laughs> no pressure on us now, then. <laughs> no, not at all, Dave. My fear is that some of our listeners say that you shouldn't listen to us whilst operating heavy machinery because your voice puts them to sleep. So... Don't use the guillotine whilst you're listening to the show, if that's okay, Scott. I'll, I'll be quiet for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> all good, all good. So let's get into it, I guess. So I'm going to ask a question that I always like asking people who I haven't met properly before. What brought you into gaming, Scott? Yeah, I guess it's like most kids who are playing the uh, Milton Bradley kind of games. And then I remember in high school, I played Risk with friends you know, here and there. And, but I would like to play with, I have a younger brother and I like to play games with him. Um, and then when my, I could bring my parents in, but then, you know, went to college and took a little break from that kind of stuff and then got married. And then seemingly about, about uh, six months after I got married, then I got really into board games, into Euro games, that kind of thing. And so my wife was just totally oblivious to this, this possibility. And, uh, now she's married to a big board gamer. How did you then sort of move towards 18xx as a genre? How did that sort of happen for you? Well, when I started playing, it was just, so this is about 2007, 2008. And it was just going to the game store and playing Euro games there. But it was a very uh, headfirst dive into the whole thing. And I wanted to just try all sorts of different types of games. And, you know, like I remember Power Grid, I think was the first Euro game that I really played at the game store. And that was like, okay, this is, this is a great game. And, you know, to be honest, like looking back at it now, it's just like, this is the perfect introduction for, you know, like the economic part of a Euro game, you know, type family. And then I just started building from there. And I remember I, I went to WBC that year and BoardGameGeekCon and I, you know, I was just really into it. And just kind of surveying what all the stuff is, all the options are. And then I even went to Chattanooga, I think maybe a, about eight months after. So the 18XX convention. So, and then at that point, it was like very eye-opening, like what there is out there. And I remember when I went to the game store, it, how these games spread is that I see people playing 18XX and they play it every single week. And, you know, I say, okay, I've played with these folks for a little bit and we got these guys who are playing 18xx every week and they're very dedicated to it so let's check out what they're doing um and i played it and played 1861 it, it was pretty rough to uh start because the the other players were very experienced and i was just kind of like you know bumbling my way through it so we ended up stopping about uh you know about at the four trains and then i think i went on board game geek and rated it as six so you know, it wasn't like immediately, <laughs> like this was, you know, I, I found my home. It's like, okay, this is a weird thing that I don't know if I'm into, but I just kept coming back to it and they were, they were there every week. So we played EU after that, I think. And, you know, that went a little better and, you know, EU is a game where you do have some pressure to like 
keep up with your miners, like keep giving them trains. And, you know, then it's kind of like from there, just like meeting every week and, you know, a couple times a week sometimes. So having a local group's key, right? It's hard to get into it without a local group. I think that's what we all take for granted. Yeah. And, and it's a slippery slope once you get started, as you say, once you decide, as you say, that you've gone through some of those growing pains and, and, and worked out that actually, yeah, I do want to kind of stay in this space, then yeah, it seems as though you can kind of accelerate that as long as you've got the ability to play regularly. Right. And the, the games take a long time to play, of course, you know, like four to six hours or something like that. So I was, I was interested in playing many different types of games. And then when I went to Chattanooga and I saw that, okay, there are people who basically just play 18xx. What would that be like if I was one of those players? And then, you know, basically just, just made that happen. (laughs) (laughs) I can relate to the full start thing as well. I was fortunate that Dave brought me back into it about nine months after my first exposure. So I can totally get the whole coming away from it uncommitted. I think my, um, I think I was just turned off it for a bit longer, but then to be fair, I've got to say this, right? We're considered pretty hardcore in so much as we play a lot. And then we also create media around it. That's a whole different kettle of fish to actually starting to make it. What made you become a publisher of all things? So with 18xx, there's this culture of print and play. And like, especially then you could buy the games from Deep Thought Direct back then. Um, so I did that, but there were still lots of other print and play games. So like, I remember the Mark Derrick games, 18AL and 18GA were popular and like they were seen as good introductory games. So, you know, I made print and play those and brought those to try to teach, you know, more people how to play and, you know, to some mixed success. I don't think those games really ever pulled anybody in, but definitely people were able to like stick with it. And from there, it's just kind of a matter of, you know, you start with scissors and you say, well, this would be a lot easier if I got a a better cutter. And then eventually I had enough stuff that I felt like I could make, you know, that style of game. And then I, you know, approached John Tamplin about doing the deep thought, you know, building games for them. And, And at that point, Jeff, from Golden Spike Games was already set up to the, for this. So there, there was already a precedent for how it could work. And uh, he, he kind of cautioned me like, you know, making games for other people uh, is, is totally different than making games for yourself. But it, w- it was something I really liked doing already. So I felt confident that it, it could be something that I could make something of. And of course, I was still working a full-time job, you know, and, until about a couple of years ago. So it's just something I did on the side anyway. I can relate to that. It's hot. I mean, I'm the guy of the two of us that does more print and play of me and Dave, obviously not of you and me, Scott. And, <laughs> and I can relate to how long it takes to make this stuff by hand. Now, admittedly, my process is probably nearer your early process. And although I'm considering buying a die cutter uh, because it just would make life so much easier, it's still a few, it's many, many hours to make a single game. So oof, doing it on the side, that's a labor of love as much as anything else, surely. Yeah, of course. And I remember for many years, my wife would always give me a hard time about finding these little laminated triangles, you know, like in the couch or whatever. And obviously that's from the part that's left over after you cut off, a cut apart the trap tile. Yep, I can relate to that. Mine's uh, the little corner chits from a corner cutter. But (laughs) yeah. So um, how long with the uh, physical production, how long do you reckon it takes you to make a title now then? Not the 18 Chesapeake method where you're going to have somebody else do it with the let's say you're making a copy of 18 mechs i just kind of estimate that it's hard for me to put a definite number on it but i always estimate it about two hours for like a hundred dollar game wow um, but the reason why it i can't really estimate it is i do it in batches of either 10 or 20 games um so i because it's it's just so much faster than like waiting for the printer to warm up and print it out and make sure that it all printed okay so it's it's easier and this, that's how the kind of moves to scale with the you know, the big manufacturing machines work too, is once you have it set up, then you can just do many copies very quickly, but it's all the setup time, waiting for the laminator to heat up, you know, that kind of things. I do them all in in batches now. Sure, there's a mechanical efficiency to doing all your shares at the same time and then going into a tile mode. And as much as it drives you nuts doing a pile of tiles, they're going to be straighter if you're working on a day of tiles as opposed to mixing it up. So I've got to ask a different question about the production, if that's okay. And it's uh, less the physical side of it, more the development side of it. So let's just say I come to you with a title. I don't have a title, Scott. Don't worry. This isn't me trying to... Bust yeah, you yeah. Oh, I'm already salivating, just waiting for your first one. <laughs> it, don't worry, it'll be rubbish. It'll be rubbish. Um, <laughs> just like our first podcast, you want my second one, Scott. 
Um, It'll have bankruptcy <laughs> rules somewhere in it, I'm sure. Just for you, Dave. Let's say I come to you with a title. How much polish does the title have to come before it lands at your door? And how much do you get involved in the development process of something that's going to have the All Aboard Games badge on it as opposed to the DTG? It has changed over time. So when I was first starting, like 1861 was the first game I published. And that was, you know, all ready to go. And it was a matter of remaking the graphics and, you know, just doing, you know, updating. Well, there'd been an FAQ for that game. So integrating all the frequently asked questions into the rules and just trying to get it as polished as possible. But, you know, it's all just stuff I'm doing on nights and weekends. So that's where it started. But now it's gotten to the point where it's it's all we're playing them online, like on board 18 for, you know, many, many plays before anything ever even makes it to the prototype stage. So like this 1822 MX that, you know, that we've done the prototype um, just recently, that's a good example. So that was a pretty quick turnaround because I was really excited about it. Thought, you know, we need more of these short 1822 games and the 1822 MRS medium regional scenario has been so popular, but in order for someone to buy that, they need to buy the the full 22 game plus an extra board on top of that. So it's even like a more expensive. So I was thinking, you know, how can we have a game that people can get this 1822 experience without having to, you know, spend $200 basically and, you know, in the short game. So I kind of started that one as it's going to be a short game. And I started working on it in like December and I brought the first, you know, copy to Chattanooga and played it four times or five times. And, really did some like quick development stuff, just changing things to make it work better. And then spent the last three or four months, like every week, just playing it every week and making tweaks. So, and now it's to a point where I I feel like it can be released to that bigger prototype audience. So, you know, things have really changed. So it used to be basically not doing, you know, much or any development work. And now it's, it's like, you know, hundred percent development work. And uh, if you brought a game to me, you know, if it's, if it's a good game, maybe not much, but definitely get it play tested and work out the kinks. It used to be that just getting the rules right was the biggest part of that development process, making sure there's minimal typos and that kind of thing. But now it's more like redeveloping the game. You're investing a lot of yourself in that development process. You know, it's not like you're just pumping this stuff out like a photocopier. So I have to ask, you must have some sort of objective lens you use to see if a game's worth picking up. Do you have a general rule of thumb for whether it's worth picking it up? Is it a meaningfully different thing? Is it what comes to mind? Yeah, I think all of those things come into it that, you know, anything you could think of has to add value to the genre. Otherwise, you should just be playing something else. You know, like basically, like I want to be able to when I make these handmade games, I want to be able to like say, yeah, probably I'll be able to sell 200 copies of this in the next three or four years. So that's like a minimum requirement. So then what goes into that, you know, yeah, it should be like a novel idea that people will get excited about. And, you know, if it's a, a new geographic area that hasn't been covered for a while, like we have uh, 18 Max, which is a great game, and I haven't revisited that for a while. So that's why I thought, you know, 1822 Max or, you know, MX would be a good way to revisit that. And, you know, what I like about 1822 is it, there are more hexes, you know, you can, there's more cities on a board. You can get like a little bit more of the geographical flavor. So uh, the 18 Max is a pretty high level, you know, map of Mexico, I would say. So, you know, in that case, you know, zooming in a little more or, you know, zooming, zooming more detailed anyway. So like the idea is that it's, it's adding some value and the 22 system is awesome too. So. Yeah. I think the 22 system is definitely one of the most innovative things we've seen in the last you know, four or five years in that 18xx space. And, and so, yeah, I think applying that in other scenarios is certainly of interest because it definitely makes you look at the games differently and think about them. So, yeah, I'm very excited about 18 to 22 MX when that comes further down yeah, I'm the trying, line. I'm just trying to say that so that people don't, when I get orders, they're, they're not confused about about whether they're getting MX or, you know, 22 MX. <laughs> well, speaking of all the Xs, um, the feedback from Trax Railcon was very strong about 1822MX. So we're looking forward to seeing that as well. Whether it, whether we get a show out of it, I don't know, but we're certainly looking forward to playing it. I'm sure we'll get a show out of it. That, that's our, our raison d'etre, I'm sure, isn't it? Well, like I say, Dave, we've uh, given so much time to 1822 already, we should probably look at the 1861s and 1867s <laughs> of the world. That's, that's by the by. Um, so I have to ask, you mentioned you played Power Grid historically, 
And that's a good pivot point into this sort of thing. Are you playing any non-18xx games now, or is everything sort of died at the cult of 18xx? Yeah, probably more similar to that. I would, it's funny, the whole Kickstarter 18 Chesapeake thing, because I feel like there's been an evolution in the hobby toward uh, more fantasy and kick, you know, minis, Kickstarter kind of games. So I feel like the hobby has shifted away from my preferences to some, to some extent. I mean, there's still great games, but my kind of core Euro game preferences are, are in the uh, Hans and Gluck, like German style games. And the hobby seems to have shifted away from that a little bit more. So I, I, w- I would still be very interested to play those like Aaliyah games, you know, that kind of thing but not as much in the the newer games. I just feel like they're more intricate than I want. Um, you know, I want like a, a just a core game system, you know, the Kinesia games or wh- whatever that, that, you know, I find more interesting rather than just layering on, you know, detail and theme and that kind of thing. Well, have I got a podcast for you? You should listen to the Gaming Mogul's last podcast about games that punch above their weights because that's the sort of thing. Yes. There's um, some stuff in there, but I, I think we're of similar taste. Dave, I think, is also in that position, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I've i kind of, yeah, stopped buying as many normal standard sort of Euro games, want of a better phrase, because they've just moved away from, from where I really like being. And I'd much rather invest my time more often than not in either 18xx or, you know, something of similar sort of heavy detail and such. So cube rails, things like that. Always got time for the estates, though, Dave, yeah? Oh, of course, of course, just so you can beat me. Yeah, yeah, I love that game. So kind of getting us back on track a little bit, so moving a little bit more, again, back towards that 18xx flavour. So what, what is your favourite 18xx game, Scott? Yeah, I think, I think uh, it's 1822, but not, not just 1822. It's just any different little flavour of 1822. So now we've got the medium regional scenario, and then there's a north regional scenario that we've been working on that will probably be out in the fall. Um, there's Canada and there's East and West scenarios for Canada and, you know, now the MX. So I, I think just the variety there, I can't really pinpoint and say this is the one, but I really love the variety and how um, any of these scenarios kind of have been shaped in a way that provides us a little bit different flavor. It's kind of like the Age of Steam maps where you're basically playing the same Age of Steam game, but everything's got a little bit of a twist on it. For example, the uh, Canada, we've got the eastern side, um, which have, have these, you know, basically unbalanced companies like, you know, the GT in the middle. Um, and then these ones that are kind of off um, on the eastern side. And then the the railroad in the south, the dark blue one. And I guess lo- looping around back a little bit to that 1822 MX uh, conversation, can you reveal anything about what that does that sort of, you know, just slightly tweaks the already excellent system of 22? The biggest tweak is the fact that instead of the uh, miners and the trains getting exported, you know, getting removed from the game, they actually serve a purpose now. They get put into the national, the NDEM Ooh. railroad. So interesting. It's it's kind of like these games that have you know the Bank of England or just some other entity that you can invest in, but it isn't a company that you like have a you are the president of you're a minor investor in this bigger thing. Um, so it, it is a way, and it, so the partial cap games anyway have this problem where of this like rich get richer problem where you're running a good company. So then people should invest in you and then you get to buy more trains and you just kind of run away, you know, snowball up from there. So this uh, NDEM railroad gives a little safety valve to that. So if somebody does have a high priced good company you have an alternative. You can invest in the NDEM and make that a good company and a good place to park your money until you're ready to do what you want to do rather than you know needing to park your money in a share of an already good company and just making it better and better. Now that makes sense. That's, that sounds really interesting. I've actually, you know, I, I, there might be an episode in that, Dave, I'll, I'll concede. Um, I, I was pretty sure there would be. Um, and, and I think that sounds, that sounds definitely very interesting because because as you say, sometimes you're forced to kind of help the, the rich get richer because it's just in benefit to you to get the, get that capital into your own pocket as well, but but it accelerates the game in a different way. So yeah, no, interesting. Very much looking forward to when that arrives later this year. Yeah. And the other cool thing is uh, I, I'm trying to use, I'm trying to reuse every little component that comes in the game. So in the game, you also get the bidding cubes 
And depending on the number of players, there's about 20 bidding cubes that don't get used. So if you have uh, fewer players, then they're just colors that don't get used. If you have more players, then you just get less cubes per person. So now those bidding cubes have a purpose. Uh, they get to give you a discount on terrain. So rather than laying a yellow tile, you can put a bid or put a cube down just from this general builder cube pool. And it helps since the Mexico map is so full of terrain, it helps you. You basically trade your building tempo, your track lane tempo for, you know, cash. And so people have really liked that mechanism too. Wow. That's the- I can say that that makes me wonder how many more of these 22 titles you've got in your brain space. I'm sure you don't want to talk about them now, but when you likened it to Age of Steam, I found that to be an interesting metaphor. I thought that, like you said, getting the price point down so people can own more variants of it. I'll be honest, our biggest reservation in the 1822 episode, our Maiden episode, was it was hard for us to justify owning 1822 and 1822 CA because they're both big box big price experiences. We've changed that now, as you know, Scott, from your um, from your order history. I may have an 1822 CA coming in, but the point I'm making is being able to make that experience available at a cheaper price point and more flavours of it. Yeah, I, I can see why that's appealing to you as a publisher, and it's certainly appealing to me as a consumer. So great to hear. Mm, and I think it's appealing to players as well. It's, it's, it's certainly a well-liked system. And, and so, yeah, more of it, please. So I think you were going to lead us into the next section of questions, Craig. So let's try and drill down and focus on on your current project du jour, Scott, and, and look a little bit more into 18 Chesapeake. Again, Dave, with your fruity du jours and every episode, I'm having my mind blown. I can't do the transitions anymore. I can't live up to that. Just looking at the highest level. Now, my expectations were it was going to make it. But to see that your project looks on track for 400% of its project goal is phenomenal. You must be absolutely pumped, Scott. Right. I'm uh, beside myself. I can't really get over how impressive this whole project has gone. It started out as just a very small, I don't know if you checked out the page when I first launched it, but I've gotten so much input from people. Basically, I I don't have that much Kickstarter experience. I've only Kickstarted about, you know, seven or eight things. And I haven't, I haven't really tracked the industry. Like, like I was talking about, I, I just kind of my interests have kind of fallen away and I've got enough stuff to work on. So I was not expecting, I, you know, I saw Lonnie's 18CZ, I thought was a good model. Like that, that ended at about 60,000. And I was thinking like, okay, that seems like a reasonable goal for this thing. And, you know, like telling my friends and family, you know, like that kind of thing, you know, they're pretty impressed with that. Like, okay, yeah, you could probably get 60, but the fact that we still have a couple weeks to go and it's already, it's at 106 now. Uh, it was just unbelievable. And, you know, it's all good because I get to hire a graphic designer and, you know, the, the new box isn't enough yet, but I've seen it and it looks awesome. So it's, it's just very cool to be able to add in these ex- extra value. I put these stretch goals out here and I did not at all expect that we, you know, like I thought, yeah, I put the stretch goals in after I got a sense that, okay, we're going to get past 60, but, you know, as truly stretch goals. Right now, it's it's on track for about 150, and I, I just don't know what to say about that. It, it's totally unbelievable. I know what you mean about the amount, amount of prep you need to do a Kickstarter, because every time I go and look at a Kickstarter or talk to friends that are running them, the amount of prep that goes in and how polished they are now in terms of video collateral, and even just basic graphic design for the layout of how you present information is huge. It's completely a completely different landscape to five years ago when you could get away with a lot kind of more loose, basic campaign page. Now it has to really stand out. It's one of those things that, you know, the aim of the Kickstarter wasn't just to, to pick up all of those seasoned 18xx players, but obviously you wanted to bring the game. And one of the aims of Chesapeake is to bring 18xx to new players. So you know, that's evident. I think that the, the success you're seeing here is clearly achieving that goal. You know, you're, you're definitely resonating with people outside of that core HNX. Is that a question, Dave? Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so I guess it is a question in a roundabout kind of way in my usual rambling style. So, yeah, I guess you, do you feel, you're, you know, that you're achieving that aim? You know, Chesapeake, as you say, was, was set out as a game to try and be uh, both for the existing players, but also to teach and, and bring new players into the fold. Do you think the Kickstarter is, is helping to drive that adoption? Yeah, I think so, because, I mean, I have a good sense of who orders the All Aboard games uh, from, you know, like when I release a new game. The, the 18xx community is 
very dedicated. So when I first post a game, I could pretty much tell you who's going to be ordering this game in the first like three or four days. I, I just, you know, like I, it's just been repeatable. And so they're very dedicated. So, um, but that list is not that long. They're very dedicated, but maybe there's 40 people or something like that. So to get up where it looks like we have about uh, 1300 copies now, obviously this is reaching a much wider audience. So part of that is international customers who, you know, have much more reasonable shipping costs for this game versus um, the other games. But then I think there's just this whole new audience, people who have gotten into Age of Steam or Brass that are looking for that first Polish 18xx experience. And, you know, hopefully, you know, that's what they're going to get with 18 Chesapeake. Yeah, I've got a slightly more um, lowbrow question. So what's your uh, nickname for 18 Chesapeake so far? Is it Chessy, Cheesy Peaks, the Little Swiss? What's What are you calling it in-house? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just... I'm not really that into nicknames, but I I understand why people use them. And I, I think Chessie is, that's that's nice enough. That's where you land. Nice. Che- cheesy to me has kind of a, a negative connotation. Oh, I see. With a British audience, that play well. We like our ridiculous turns of phrase. So. That, that's just our podcast. This Chessie has a precedent in that the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad was called the Chessie system. Like that was kind of their logo branding. Oh, there you go, yes. Dave. Something for the foamers out there. Yeah, and I think people people like Chessie because they, they're not quite sure. They don't want to misspell Chesapeake, so they do something. Sure. Do a nickname anyway. I, I've even misspelled it in the show notes, I think. Just don't do that when we release the proper episode. My copy is flawless, Dave, except when it isn't. So what are your objectives for the 18 Chesapeake campaign beyond revenue? We've obviously covered bringing new players into the fold. Is it exposure for your particular publishing house? Is it options on changing the way you produce what's the kind of what's next in the sense that what, what does this launch you into yeah I, th- I think it's more like the second part kind of changing the business model you know take in that kind of deep thought games business model of hand making the games and publishing new games kind of to the to the extent that i personally can do it so i every time i'm working on laminating or the die cutting i'm realizing like i this has got to be the last one like i can't keep doing this just because it it all builds so now i have uh, like you know i guess 22mx is the 16th title that i'm hand making and i can't just keep adding because as i keep we have this dedicated fan base that keeps buying the games and we have new players that come in and they want to buy you know sometimes the whole catalog one at a time or all at once and plus the you know the deep thought games that i I make too. There's a long tail on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just no way. And I, yeah, I see them as classic games that are always going to be in style, you know, to a, a small extent, but en- enough that it keeps me busy. So I just can't keep, keep going and going. So some of these I need to pull off and make into this, you know, manufactured run. Although now I'm finding that that takes a lot of time too. But I guess if I'm reaching, you know, over 1,000 people versus a normal game that maybe I'm reaching about 200 people over a, the course of a few years. And you're less likely to get repetitive strain injury, right? Yeah, that too. That too. <laughs> so, you know, it all all the work, it all pays. It's, it's all good. But with this comes like extra customer service and responding emails and that kind of thing. So. so you mentioned earlier, Scott, this was your first experience. Well, your experience with Kickstarter was somewhat limited. I'm guessing it's your first experience running one. What are the challenges you've seen with running the Kickstarter so far? What shocks have you had? And what things have been easier than you expected? Well, I think a lot of what I've done up until this point is, you know, making graphics and that kind of thing. So that all comes pretty easy to me. And I can make graphics that look, you know, I would say Kickstarter level polished, you know, maybe not print level polished, but Kickstarter, you know, kind of makes everything pretty low resolution, even if it shows up big on the screen. So Generally, I can handle that kind of thing, but there's just so many elements that other people have already been through with respect to what to say about the game and that, you know, that kind of thing that I just hadn't really ever dealt with before. Like, basically, all I can do is, you know, with the handmade games is, you know, put a note out there and say this game is available and it's, you know, my my orders fill up and I'm kind of busy for the next couple months. So trying to do that extra level of marketing is something that's pretty new to me. And, you know, I, you know, I mentioned my, 
my normal job was as a civil engineer and that was not I was not as a marketing person so sure <laughs> i've noticed your twitter accounts become a little bit more active uh recently scott so, yeah right so I saw it, I, it, it, right it does feel like i i always kind of felt like i should keep a little bit of distance because i just need to focus on the hand making games but when the kickstarter started i was thinking well now i should make more of an effort to do, you know do more of that social media marketing and board game geek stuff so certainly working some of the feedback i got scott was uh, when i was polling some of our audience for questions was well scott's making himself very available online on board game geek and on the kickstarter page so you know we can ask a lot of those questions directly which i mean that's downplaying our podcast don't get me wrong people still want to hear your voice but it's certainly a testament to the fact you're making yourself available and from what i've read creators that are involved with the community even if it's just a case of saying i'm listening it just instills a lot of confidence in the people back in the project there's a really good vibrant scene around that sort of you know social media and and you know in the 18xx space you've got the guys in in poland rouse and board who do lots of blogs i think there's lots of people willing to to kind of help you get the message out there speaking of audience questions i've got one here and i'm going to ask it now seems like a good time when you were developing the game scott did you use Chesapeake to teach any brand new players? And if so, what was your experience and their responses? To be honest, probably not. Although I do feel like just teaching the game outright is kind of like a, is like a new player experience. But I would say that I have not personally used it as a teaching game just because I have such good access to people and, you know, good players and it just hasn't been that situation. Sure. Uh, and I guess, like you say, a lot of your development work is remote. And how many brand new 18xx players could dare to face the board 18 interface? Right, yeah. That's part of the value of those prototype kits in the sense that they're the sort of thing that you can land in front of brand new players. Or more to the point, people you're working with, for want of a better term, can land in front of a new player and map that experience out, which you couldn't with an online tool. Yeah, um, I guess kind of coming back around to it is that I have taught it to players that don't have experience with the full capitalization game. So to me, that feels like a kind of like a new player experience. So you're not, you kind of know how to lay, lay the tiles, but you don't understand why you would do certain things with respect to where to set a par value. Um, and then like where the shares are paying, you know, in the company versus from the IPO where they don't pay. So to me, that does also feel like a new player experience, even though it's not a brand new player to 18xx. Let's move on to something that I'm incredibly interested in because it's kind of my jam. What brief did you give the graphic designer for the alternative artboard? Because there's been a lot of chat about that old artboard from kind of both directions. I'm interested to see what you told whoever your graphic designer was what approach to take or did you just give them a free whip hand and uh, they came back with what you've got today? No, I, I took a lot of care in describing what I was looking for, but not dictating it. So basically we looked at a lot of examples of the other mass published artwork that had gotten more than just the basic 18xx artwork like, you know, like I usually do. And I pointed to a lot of things that I didn't like about some of those other maps which I don't necessarily want to go into all the detail, but, and then I, I described like a vision for what I wanted this one to look like. Then, you know, she took it from there and did a really good job. And, you know, we're going to keep tweaking it, but I think it's already looking really great. Like I say, I think the, uh, the logo on the board for starters, it's great use of dead space. You know, I think that's, a, that's wonderful and it just gives it a little bit of character without affecting the usability in any way, shape or form. I, I, I'm a big fan of it. Dave, what's your position on the artwork? No, I, I think it looks it looks very fresh, looks very clean, looks, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you saw it set up on a table across the room, it would pique your interest. We all understand why some of those core HNXX color schemes are in place, but, but sometimes, and I know that, that's feedback a lot of people are given on a number of occasions, it doesn't really necessarily grab people's attention. I think that look that you shared for, for what it's going to look like will, will get people's attention, they'll see it, questions will be asked. So hopefully that drives future sales going forwards. Yes, that is a big question is what do you do after the Kickstarter is over? Like how many more copies? And my goal was always just to be able to have copies that this could just always be on hand for people to buy because it's a, a good introduction. You know, like I sell a lot of copies of 1889 and 
personally, I would prefer to teach people with 18 Chesapeake versus 1889. So I want it to be, you know, equally available. This bit may get trimmed out of the podcast, Scott, but uh, we'll see how it goes. The only bit of feedback I would give you on the map is I'm in two mines on the mountains that bridged the hexes. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, of course. The ones that overrun. I like them visually, but on the flip side, it's kind of, is that going to cause play issues? I think it's one of those things where we're used to little tiny black triangles that are definitely inside the hex. There's no ambiguity. But I also think on the flip side, people are smarter than we give them credit for. I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's how I look at it too. Yeah. Just to continue that. It's one of those tropes of, of some of the Marflow games. Their artwork bleeds across hexes and does things in a non-conventional way, uh, assuming we, we all agree that the you know, that there is a convention for Asian XX art. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to do it that way as such. And I think back to, to some of the reprints you were referring to earlier, Scott, you know, I think they give a fresh look and they try and get, they're trying to, you know, grow the genre and bring people in. So I think this, this is definitely working in that same space, in my view. If you can't be brave on the alternate art board, then there's almost no point having the alternate art board. Is that an argument? Yes, I, I absolutely think that's that's the case. So if there's ever a question... You know, like we have this question about the uh, the mountains bleeding in. You just flip the board over. I mean, I guess you can't do it in the middle of a game, but you always have that reference to understand that, no, that's, that mountain is in that specific hex. I think by not limiting it to the hex, it does bring it together. It helps build the flow of the whole map altogether rather than, for example, in 46, there's a lot of little mountains and they're all very, you know, they're all confined to the, the hex but it doesn't it doesn't bring the map together sure is it something you could mitigate potentially uh, i know i'm going wildly off topic here but you could mitigate by putting the um the standard map art on on the back of the rule book, which i think you do in all your other games anyway scott it kind of depends on how the page count comes out but i imagine that there will be some representation of that map in the rule book yeah, I always find them really useful there because it just gives you a quick reference to what the original state of the board is. I find with my rule books, it tends to be the other way around. I end up having to put a notes section in the back to get the right even number of pages as opposed to running out of pages. That's something else. No, thank you for talking about the art. I appreciate that. I've got another question about kind of links to the manufacturing side of this. In terms of the offshore manufacturing, have you spoken to other people about how you're going to manage that? I mean, it's got to be a very different experience to being the guy on the lathe versus the guy who's commissioning a thing made out of wood. Right, yeah. I, I don't actually have that much concern about it. I've been working with the same people, uh, so it's it'll be manufactured by Panda. And ever since I started making the games for Deep Thought, um, I kind of coordinated that first board order. So we, you know, basically to make the games, we have blank boards and then we apply labels to them. Um, and smooth them out and then put them through this la- big laminating machine. And so to really apply the label down to the board. So we've been doing that for about eight years and I've been working with the same people. So I, I generally have an understanding of how these things get done and, you know, how, you know, like I give them the spec and then they tell me it back and I, then they send a sample and I, I don't have too much concern about that. So it's actually having arch is a new thing. But I have enough experience with, you know, like outputting in different color profiles and that kind of thing that I, I, think, I think it's going to work out well. And they want it to be a really good product, too. And they, they send production samples. So I think no matter how it turns out, we're going to we're going to make it great. Yeah, I'm pleased to hear that. Like I say, I'm glad to get confirmation that it's Panda. I'd heard on the sort of grapevine that it was Panda due to things like minimum order quantity and stuff like that been a general discussion but i know um jordan draper has moved some of his stuff over to those guys and like i say this just a super wonderful product that's coming out of them so i'm looking forward to seeing how this pans out well there's a question i've been itching to ask all discussion long so um you know moving on to the stretch goals continuing that conversation obviously we know the alternate art um stretch goal i think has, has just been passed but obviously the key thing is we all want the blue crab that's that's the exciting bit i think <laughs> can you tell us more about the blue crab scott uh, yeah, so the blue crab is a little bit of a quirky thing. I think in 1853, it came with the elephant, and that kind of started the the elephant. So I know on the new 1853, the Mayfair one, they you know they show the elephants making the railroad. So obviously, the crabs didn't really help with the railroad. But to me, it it has a little bit of a personal, you know, just over the course of a month here, it's it's like it to me it 
represents where this Kickstarter started. Um, so the goal was uh, 25,000 and that was just to get this thing off the ground and make sure I stood a chance of breaking even on the project and not just, you know, not just going out of pocket. I was looking for stretch goals and that was one of the things that were suggested and people seem to get excited about it. So to me, it's, it is a total bonus thing. So it's this Maryland blue crab, which really has nothing to do with the game, except for the fact that it's a Chesapeake, you know, flavored. Nice. <laughs> I love ones that put a little bit of character in things like the priority deal, the marker, you know, or even just what's on the card is a, is usually a nice way of just, just adding something unique to that game. So as you say, the elephant uh, in 53 originated it, but um but yeah, I just, as soon as you announced those stretch goals, I thought that blue crab, I hope we land far enough up those stretch goals to get that. See, I'm not really interested in the blue crab unless it's about 30 millimeters thick and made out of plastic. If it's going to be wood, uh, I'm not <laughs> sure it's a thing I'm interested in. So just bear that in mind, Scott, if you could. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see if maybe the crabs will be a, a collector's item someday. <laughs> I have a question on this one, and it's about the production as well and the stretch goals. So you've dropped the lamination on the charters now and sort of moved that towards a cardstock type piece. What's the rationale behind that? Is it, a, is it just a cost exercise or is it a time-saving exercise? Because I would admit a lot of people do really like the uh, lamination, even though it smacks more of a cottage industry kind of thing. It has its fans. Right. Yeah, I, I do totally understand that. So the Deep Thought games, I, I think at least for the time being, will all be just made the same way. but. I've cut back on the lamination on the charters and of course the cards, but for the all board games from the cards, like almost from day one, I was doing some non laminated cards. And since then, depending on like how popular I think something's going to be, I have taken a step back and like done laminated cards. But in general, um, my finding is that doesn't make the game more playable, but it, it does add a lot of time to my production time. So I mean, I, I hate to put it in, but the cost of the laminating film just keeps going up and up and up. And I, I do want to keep the games about the same price. So do we. So do we, right? We don't want to pay more for something that doesn't actually represent more value. I can understand you trying to hit a price point. Yeah. So so that, so that basically, like, I, I think I pay about a dollar a sheet for laminating film. Um, and that price has gone up about eh, 40% or something like that over the, the course of the last seven or eight years. So... It's it's one of those things where if I keep the price the fixed and and that just keeps adding, whereas the the cards are you know have always been the same and they're, they're basically the cards are comparable price but no labor you know right I just I just place it more. That makes sense. No, I understand that. And to be fair, it's one of those things that sort of smacked weird to me when I was talking to some of the PMPs in the states about oh I don't want to do Matt Lamb that it's so expensive because over here it's a little bit more, but it's not tons more. So it's interesting to see how local markets produce different outcomes, for, you know, in terms of decisions you make. Yeah, I would say it's about five or six times more than like gloss to get like what we use is called satin. That's in the same range as as matte. To me, the matte laminate has a little bit more of a gritty feel, and the satin has a you know a better you know feel to the touch. Now, where are you going with the tiles? Is it going to be punch boards? Or, or is it going to be? I think I heard wonderfully the um, the GMT tiles for eighteen forty six described once as uh, digestive biscuits. So I guess is it going to be <laughs> big, thick, hefty tiles, or is it going to be the lighter, uh, lightest end of the tile spectrum? Um, it, it will be thinner than the GMT tiles, but only by I think it's, it'll be like three quarters of the GMT tile thickness. It'll be a standard, standard, you know, like a Carcassonne tile that that kind of. Sure, I, I guess similar to 18CZ in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay, can you get me a bespoke? Um, can you get me a bespoke copy done, please? If it's not as thick as a breeze block, I don't want them. I'm I'm not interested. In <laughs> <laughs> you, you like the tables to look like it's literally got a railroad on yeah, it. If I can get a bit of parallax vision, I can't see over the top of them. I'm quite a short guy anyway, so it lets me obscures my own bad play. In terms of the tokens, are you going to be using a chipboard type approach with that, or are you going to stay with your wooden labels type? Yeah, well, we've reached the stretch goal for the wood tokens, so it'll be wooden stickers. Um, so it'll be very similar to when you would order the with the token upgrade kit from All Board Games. Oh, nice. Baked in. Fantastic. And that's always my favorite bit out of getting a new All Aboard game is the, the evening I set aside to sit down and to stick of the tokens. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, particularly um, so, 1817. That was that was an evening I'm not getting back, but generally it was really enjoyable. Yes. Well, now you've uh, increased the value of your copy by uh, significantly by applying the labels. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I also looked into the screen printing, which can be done, but it you can't get the detailed artwork on it. It would just be like the letters, you know, like D ampersand O. Um, and, you know, basically what happens is someone just sits down at a table and screen prints each single token. So you stick a token in, puts the screen on top, you know, uh, swipes the paint over it, go to the next one, you know, like 50 wow. times. That, that feels so, very labor. Right. So, it, I mean, it, it definitely could be done, but it's, um, to me, it's, it's kind of, a, even, even the crab, <laughs> even the crab has more value than, than uh, a simple artwork like that. I, I guess the only um, input I would give is that the, 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 I hate, we keep name checking them, Dave. It's like we've got shares in it or something. The rail on board stickers with um, based on a sort of like a vinyl type base are really quite nice in terms of the ink not rubbing off and lasting over time. Yeah, I think they'll be more like that than the ones that I send through my printer, the paper one. Okay, cool. There yeah. you go. That's that question answered. I was going to ask if they were vinyl. I was trying to ask it in a roundabout, polite way, and uh, there you go. You very kindly answered the question I dare ask. Yeah, they'll they'll be like other other board games you get that are. Yeah, more like that vinyl sticker. Excellent. Um, I've got a question then around the Deep Fork game stuff, because you mentioned about that stuff all being laminated. And you were quoted on the geeks talking about them being less sustainable for you in terms of carrying on making them. Is that an intention that you're going to, are you considering dropping that license entirely down the line? Is it a thing you raise to try and ask if you can change it to cards instead of lamination? Is there anything behind that quote we can talk about or...? Yeah, I would say it's uh, kind of similar to the discussion before. It's just I only have so many hours in a day, and those games do sell pretty well. So if I continue to make those, then it limits how many hours I can spend, you know, working on new games. So I could see in the longer term dropping those if they need to stay with laminated components because the cost of those also haven't gone up. Um, And those are hot priced higher than all board games because they include, you know, extra royalties. So they're already not as good of, of value per component. I mean, they're great games, of course. So people should keep buying them. Some of my favorite games are in there. When I read that piece, I was wondering, okay, well, the, the fact that you and Jeff are both doing the accelerated production means that it's possible to get these games in a reasonable time frame. And it would have, it was sad of me to see 18 mechs and 18, 17 less available. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say it's one of those things where something's got to give, and it's either, it's either maybe one of those games goes to a, a more uh, mass-produced, or it goes to a simpler production like the cards and and charters, or I just drop them. So you know, I'm for now. I'm interested in continuing to sell them, and I'm going to. But I would just give the warning that in the long term, I I don't see that production method as being sustainable for me. Firstly, absolutely appreciate you being, you know, honest and open there. But but yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely some candidates and hopefully in that selection that, that maybe could follow on from this Kickstarter success and maybe be viewed as as future opportunities. I think, you know, maybe eighteen seventeen, maybe combined with eighteen USA in a single box might be an interesting proposition and I'm sure would hopefully be a good Kickstarter. I don't don't know if I'm talking out of turn there, so do apologize if I am. I would love it. Just uh, sign me up, you know. I guess that does ask an interesting question, doesn't it? What happens to 18 USA if you're no longer making 1817, right? Does it become, uh, I guess that's more, it's a hard question to answer until we know where we are. That's like reading tea leaves. I would say, of course, 18 uh, USA doesn't, it's just a board and some cards um, and and some uh, tokens and some chits. So it's... And some design, Scott, and some design. Don't forget that bit. Well, okay, that's a good example of of one where it was done. Sean Fox was selling it, and I was like, okay, this is an interesting thing, but Sean isn't gonna doesn't want to produce it anymore, and this is one that I can just kind of crank out pretty quickly. So that's one that I would say that I, you know, basically I didn't do any development work on. I just took his input plus all the playtest feedback that he got from selling the first sixty copies of it, and um, you know, it's been successful, and people have enjoyed playing it. Well. It's only polite, considering our guests, to give you the floor. Anything you'd like to say to our listeners out there around 18 Chesapeake in terms of messaging? You know, I'm just blown away with the response to 18 Chesapeake, and it 
has opened my eyes to what kind of games could be done in the future. And now I'm just looking at all of all of the all of our games and saying, well, uh, if we can do a big print run and this will help me, you know, I can, I'll feel good. I can give a bigger royalty to the designers. I mean, right now, 200 royalties on 200 copies, you know, it's, it's some money, but it's, it's not what probably most people could, you know, really be very proud about that they, you know, earned like thousands of dollars sure, of royalties or something like that. So that makes no sense. to me, that is the biggest, I mean, these, the designers have been so generous with working with me and, you know, letting me publish their games and, I would really love to be able to give back and I see that as a good way. So I, I almost feel like me personally doing my Kickstarter is um, for a, you know, a Scott Peterson designed game is, is not as good as if I could do a Simon Cutforth uh, 1822 and, you know, and Bob LeCure has uh, really worked with me a lot on developing those games too. So I've got to grow the audience first, I guess, right? This is a good way in get more players and then there's more audience for more involved experiences like 1822. So, makes total sense and i will also say now that the more you spoke about your process in the sh- in the show it made me appreciate how much of scott peterson there is in every game that you make and i can see how it's got to be very appealing to transition to a process where i get an order i take a box off a shelf i put a box in another box and i post it versus i take an order and there's a few hours of work going into that you know that's that's yet to be done i can totally see the appeal makes me appreciate you know what yourself and jeff and um, yeah, what you guys deliver on uh, to us as the consumers. Okay, I think we should probably close the show out there. I'm going to say thanks to Scott for his patience being our first interview guest. Thanks to you, the audience, for listening to our first choppy interview with dog sounds, baby sounds, and heavens knows what's in the background. Entirely my fault. That's goodbye from me. And, uh, and from me as well. Thank you for joining us, Scott. And um, yeah, we look forward to many more games coming out of uh, All Aboard Games in the near future. Yeah, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about the games. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush. You can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com or dave at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Finally, if you'd like to contribute towards the show's running costs, then feel free to look at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com forward slash thetrainrush. Thank you for listening.